thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. But before we get cracking this evening and before our lovely host joins us, I want to remind you of our sponsor this evening, who are Pearson Edexcel and their new student centre, French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible and allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. And if you want to find out more about these GCSEs, you can go to go.pearson.com uh, forward slash MFL. Good evening, John. How are you? Good evening, Lucy. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, sir. How are you? Yeah, fine. I was talking away there. Um, always away when you first start. Um, yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Looking forward to tonight. Um, the person that we've got, Andrew Whitworth, um, I've admired from afar. So I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing what he has to say. Uh, we're going to be talking around curriculum tonight. Um, Fabulous. So, Welcome to everyone who's listening live or um, listening in the future, which always kind of blows my mind that this could be listened to in a few days' time, a few weeks' time, a few months' time. So whoever's listening, um, welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking uh, to Andrew Whitworth, as I've just mentioned. Um, so just um, a little about me. My name is John B. Um, I am currently a deputy head teacher in the northeast of England, as you can possibly tell by the accent. And um, my whole kind of thinking at the moment is around uh, curriculum, in particular math curriculum. Um, but in a broader sense, I'm interested in curriculum. Um, so welcome, Andrew. Hello. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Enjoying the holidays. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you break up on Friday? Yeah, yeah, we broke up. We had a half day on Friday. I've heard of some schools doing that. I've never worked in a school that breaks up kind of midway through um, the day on the last day, but I, I'm there for it. Um, absolutely <laughs> sounds like a great way to end the academic year. Andrew, uh, over to you. Um, if you would just like to kind of introduce yourself, kind of summarise um, who you are, what you're interested in, a little bit about your career and your background, uh, just so the, the listeners can kind of place you. So um, my name is Andrew. I'm um, an assistant head teacher in charge of teaching and learning at a school in Andover. Um, I kind of do teaching, learning and also professional development across the school. Um, I've been teaching for 16 years. So I started off in a school in Southampton, so secondary school um, in quite a deprived area. So 65 percent pupil premium. Um, I'm a history teacher by trade. So uh, became a head of department, became a kind of director of, of uh, humanities and then I've kind of worked my way through. I've been in my current post for the last four years. Um, I'm really enjoying it. And um, yeah, looking forward to this. And did you, are you primary or secondary, Andrew? I'm a, I'm a secondary teacher. Okay. Um, so is it secondary history? Uh, yeah. So yeah, by trade, I'm a secondary history teacher, but I don't actually get to teach a lot of my own subject these days. So I teach a lot of geography and, and RE and other, other humanity subjects. Uh, by choice? 
uh, by timetabling necessity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So not by choice. <laughs> no, no. By choice. I would love to teach my own subject, but uh, part part of the deal was that we help the timetabler out in 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 when he's in need. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I suppose you won't get any sympathy from me tonight. Obviously, I'm primary and have yeah. to teach everything. Um, yeah. Exactly. So, it's almost like stepping into my world, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah absolutely. Well, welcome, Andrew. Um, as I was saying at the top of the show, I'm so thrilled. I've really admired some of your work from afar, um, particularly uh, some of the research bite-sized things that um, I've seen on your social media over the last few months. Um, so uh, we're going to start the show with a with a a short section that I like to call Desert Island Desks. So this okay. is kind of um, thinking about your um, your career and kind of your essential go-to items that you need in order to teach. What would you say your top three items are for classroom teachers, um, for you yourself, um, that you simply couldn't do without? Oh, good question. Uh, I think for me, it would... That uh, is a good question. I think for me, teaching is all about preparation. So uh, I have to go in with my kind of uh, prepared lesson and, and know exactly what I'm, I'm going to be uh, doing. I think uh, I've recently been, been using kind of mini whiteboards quite a lot. Um, and also, I guess, the, the resources that I need for the lesson. So part of my job, I've got to because of um, time, uh, sorry, classroom constraints, I have to move around the school quite a lot. So making sure I've got the kind of materials I need, whatever it is for for that lesson. Um, for me, always, always, always have a bit of reading for purpose in my lesson. So that piece of reading material, I think, is is kind of crucial and fundamental to most of my lessons. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I guess those things would be my essential items. I guess it would depend on the lesson, but yeah, those, those are my essentials. So you you have something for children to read in every lesson? Uh, I try desperately for that to happen. I think, given the nature of the subjects I teach, so obviously at the moment geography, RE, a tiny tiny little bit of history, um, those things lend themselves obviously to to that. So I, I'm I'm desperately trying. That's it's part of my kind of thing that I'm I'm trying to build is is making sure that is in every single lesson at the moment. And can I ask Andrew what might that look like in a geography lesson? In a geography lesson, it might look like a, a story. So if, for example, we have just recently been teaching about rainforests and we have a, a story about one of the tribes and kind of deforestation. And then obviously what I try and do with that is have some key questions in there, have some key retrieval in the, the reading for purpose and making sure that they've got the appropriate prior knowledge to actually access the piece of reading. Um, so that's what it would be looking like in, in kind of my lessons. We're trying, I work with a, a brilliant history teacher called Neil Bates, who does a lot of work with kind of the historical association and, and he, his kind of life passion is kind of stories. And we're trying to integrate that more into kind of uh, geography and RE, obviously to try and bring a bit more meaning to the lessons, I think particularly with some of the, I don't want to offend geographers, but some of it can be a little bit dry, but that's obviously because I'm a historian. So when it's the physical geography aspects, we're trying to make it a little bit more meaningful to students. 
I'd probably upset probably upset a load of jobbers there. But... <laughs> I'm sure not. Yeah, I think it's it's something that we see in primary as well. We try not only in English lessons to include um, texts where possible, but having a, a real kind of rich tapestry of texts across the whole curriculum in history and science and geography and maths um, can be a really good way to do it. it it's it's um, it's great to hear that actually that's something which is happening in secondary schools as well. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, part of my remit is changed like next year, so I'm now going to be doing literacy across the school. So I wanted to try and kind of make sure that's embedded in my practice before I start obviously trying to put that out on a wider scale because I'm a big believer that you've got to kind of practice what you preach, even even as assistant head teacher. If they come into my lessons, exactly what I'm saying has to be what I'm doing. Otherwise, it doesn't have any kind of value. Sure, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's dive in. Uh, just before we do, uh, I'm going to read out a quick word from our sponsor. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the need of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learning language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. The new Pearson MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital which helps students develop an understanding and appreciation of the wider world. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to pearson.com forward slash MFL. Okay, let's dive in, Andrew. I've just looked ahead at some of the um, topics that we're going to be speaking about tonight. And listeners, I'm sure, um, who are here to kind of hear about your thoughts about curriculum uh, will be interested around and you know some of the, the titles that you chose were really kind of um really very carefully framed i thought and re- i think we'll get some really good discussion out of um them tonight so we've got what is the curse of coverage why is getting it right a key stage too important um what's the importance of priming for learning what is successive relearning um What is the lottery of circumstance? And I'm very intrigued about that one. And what role does research play in education? And finally, we're going to finish about um, avoiding dogmatic teaching approaches. Um, So that's kind of where we're heading. That's going to be our coverage this evening. Um, So, Andrew, let's start at the top. Um, What is the curse of coverage? Okay, Uh, right. So the curse of coverage, uh, certainly, and I'll add a caveat to all of this. Obviously, this is from my interpretations of what I've I've read around education, obviously what I've experienced. And there are lots of people with far more, far, far more knowledge than I have on these things. But for me, the curse of coverage is that tendency in curriculums to prioritise breadth of content over kind of a deep understanding and learning. So teachers might kind of rush through a topic in the curriculum and that tends to lead to, say, more superficial learning where we end up with lots of knowledge gaps. We end up with not a lot of durable learning because actually those memories decay pretty quickly. Um, And you've got this kind of priority of, of ticking off topics rather than ensuring that you've got a comprehensive understanding and some of that, obviously, I know is driven by national curriculum and the, the need to obviously cover certain things within a national curriculum. But from my experience, particularly at Key Stage 3, they, there certainly used to be this, this big tendency in education to, to just kind of rush through a topic. So if you've got 12 lessons 
of a topic, you plan for 12 lessons, but you plan new content in all of those 12 lessons. You don't, after let's say five lessons, pause, just consolidate what you've already learned. You see the kind of end of, and this will come to successive relearning, see the end of the topic as kind of the end of the learning process when actually the reality is that learning from from kind of sciences of learning learning takes a great deal of time so actually the end of a topic really is you're only about i want, want to say halfway through the learning process but probably not even that so actually you've got to come back to it um and if we want to i guess it comes down to what you actually want from the learning process so if you're trying to create what we say durable meaningful and and learning that you can transfer in different circumstances, then actually you've got to have as much priority on that kind of vertical curriculum, so the, the depth of it, as you do the horizontal curriculum. Because obviously, if you don't do that, what you're not doing is you're not changing the long-term memory of the students. And and if you're not changing it, you're not building the schemas they need for the next step. And you end up with, with quite a lot of wasted time, actually, where I think teachers maybe new to the profession not saying experienced ones will underestimate how quickly students forget things and actually you as a teacher you're you're cursed by knowledge so you think because obviously you understand it and you know it in depth that that students are going to but we know that uh, obviously learning is invisible so it's it's a really difficult job to make sure that obviously students are learning and certainly and and i think there has been a shift in in kind of the the education world but certainly historically and certainly my experience from when i started teaching was there was very much this right we've just we've got to get through this topic we've got to to make sure that we've covered the information and actually what we really want is obviously students to learn things and that might mean that obviously you've got to make sacrifices with your decision making when you come to curriculum planning because it's, we all want to, as, as a historian, everything is important and, and I could have a curriculum with every single thing in, but actually the reality is I'm going to have to make some sacrifices on things because I want students to learn. And I, I remember I used to work with kind of um, a kind of network of schools and I'd, I'd go and visit some history departments and they would cover, I don't know, Weimar Germany in a lesson and, and you'd kind of cringe because you think, well, there's not really a huge amount of point in that because they're not actually learning anything. You can can say maybe to external people, oh yeah, we've covered that, but actually that's we want to do something more important than that. We want to actually try and change the memory of students. And so for me, the curse of coverage is, is, is still fairly prevalent in schools. And actually some of that is obviously the, the, the government insisting on these national curriculums that are, are heavy with content. Some mm. of it, obviously exam boards, there's been, for key stage four, there's been a big change in the last few years in terms of the exam boards. And there's certainly in some of those exams far too much content for the learning to be actually valuable <coughs> and durable. Um, so, yeah, that for me, kind of a summary of what the, the curse of coverage is. And so, Andrew, how can we ensure that learning um, sticks and remains in children's long term memory and that it's deep? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a few things, and obviously I might flit around. Obviously, so I think the, this idea of kind of successive relearning is really important. So you've you've got to, firstly, I think, break down the key components that you actually consider to be portable knowledge. So we've been doing a piece of work on what what is the portable knowledge that students 
need to carry forward because it acts as the kind of foundation of the, the next step. So so identifying those portable knowledge is, is really important. And then I think the reality is obviously retrieval, but not just retrieval. There's there's other mechanisms as well. So you've got to build in good retrieval processes. You've got to build in good space processes, good interleaving processes. You've got to see retrieval as, as more than just a kind of mechanical mechanism. So you've got to your retrieval should be changing as the learning changes. So you should be building in opportunities for more elaborative retrieval. So that the why stuff, and you should be building in kind of transference retrieval where actually they're applying the knowledge in, in kind of different contexts and not beating yourself up, I guess, as a teacher, because you haven't covered everything. And that's difficult. And that means it, it takes a lot of kind of reflection because you need to keep coming back to it. And that's why, I guess that that kind of thing, the curriculum is never finished is so important because actually you will learn very quickly, I think, actually how much you can do in a in a way that is more meaningful. And if we don't get that right, um, Andrew, what's the impact that it has on children in key stage two or in key stage three? Well, I think this this is the, the kind of crux, isn't it? That we know that what you are likely to get, there are still huge learning gaps in, in school. And if you come to education from a background that is potentially more disadvantaged, then you need that learning to be that type of learning, the durable learning, because actually what we will end up getting with, if we continue to follow this kind of cursive coverage, is you end up getting an education system that only favours the, the ones who come from a more advantaged background, who have that cultural literacy at home, you end up with a system where students who, let's say, start with less prior knowledge never actually change their prior knowledge. And actually, if you get it right, you, what we want to do is obviously we want to change all of students' prior knowledge. So the, the reality of the cursed coverage is what you get is this kind of static education system where if you come in early as a, as a, a student with higher prior knowledge, you're always going to remain that way. And if you're a, someone who's come in as a low prior knowledge, it's always going to remain that way. If you are somebody with SEND needs, you are more likely to obviously stay not being able to access the types of curriculum that we want. If you are from a people premium background, then again, that's going to have an adverse negative impact on you. So I think the, the impact of that is that actually you, you're not optimising learning. You're not actually doing the things we talk about education research, you're not actually doing the things that the education research is, is suggesting and actually you end up with a system that we've always had. And actually what we, I think, want from education is we always want to improve the education of, of our students. So as a profession, we want to get better and better at that. Um, same with any other profession. If you went talked about medicine, obviously 20 years ago in medicine, they will constantly improve their practice. And I think that's what we as educators need to do is obviously constantly improve our practice so that we optimise more the every every child's chances in terms of education. Sure. You touched on earlier there a little bit around kind of breaking down um, ideas or breaking down learning into manageable chunks. And I'm just wondering around kind of, you mentioned that you are a secondary geography teacher. Mm -hmm. And if you could speak to um, perhaps a year six teacher or a key stage two teacher, um, what would you say the key part uh, the key objectives, the key skills um, that you would want children to know in readiness for key stage three? 
Um, well, it's, it's a very good question. Well, we'll add the caveat now that obviously I'm not an expert in geography by any any stretch of the imagination. So this, my my knowledge is not what a, a, a geographer would be. Um, but I think for it's it's a it's a tricky one. I, for me, what currently happens, and I don't know from your experience, is that there probably isn't a, enough communication between the kind of key stage two, key stage three phases. Um, you might have different experience from that and actually work quite closely with obviously the secondaries around your area. But but certainly from what I've always seen is that transition isn't isn't as um, isn't as smooth maybe as it could be. So as as a geographer, what you'd want is obviously uh, the ability, locational knowledge. You'd want some place knowledge. You'd want those kind of key concepts that they need. So some work around um, geographical field work in key stage two, but obviously with the caveat that the key stage three teachers are going to need to retrieve that at the beginning of key stage three in order for that knowledge to stick. So I think and there's lots of research around that kind of summer lag and that transition between key stage two and key stage three, but actually a lot of that needs to be on, the, the emphasis needs to be on secondary school teachers to get into primary schools and learn exactly what those primary schools are teaching because the first for me in an ideal world and this is obviously ideal world the first two or three maybe four weeks of key stage three year seven should be consolidating what they did in year six because if they if the teachers aren't doing that then obviously that knowledge that the primary teachers have spent a huge amount of time trying to embed in their students is going to be lost and that's not the primary school teachers fault it's just the fact that obviously that's what happens with memory and and we probably don't see enough and this again from my experience don't see enough of that, that communication between those kind of key stage three and key stage two and what you what I hate in education is this kind of oh well they did they can't have taught it or they it's it's you've got to be a bit more joined up in the thinking around it yeah, um, I, th I think I would tend to agree that we still haven't got it right from year six to year seven in that transition. I'm wondering, Andrew, based on your experiences, what the transition from key stage three to key stage four looks like? So transition to key stage three and key stage four is 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 an interesting one because obviously you, you effectively start an, a new course in, in key stage four. And what we you want to do in, in the secondary school is you want to try and make sure that your foundational knowledge of key stage three is there to then build on what we're offset have got this big insistence obviously on i think rightly so on, on making sure that obviously you get a, a decent breadth at key stage three um, and that you don't start teaching uh, the, the the explicit topics from key stage four and key stage three but again i think that's I'm just talking with my partner who's also a history teacher earlier on about this that you it's seeing those two things as kind of in, in my ideal world I'd get rid of the labels key stage three and key stage four because because actually it, it, if you're going to get learning right it is a process that takes five years it's your your first lesson in year seven should be just as important as your last lesson in year 11 in in, in terms of learning so what we tend to get key stage in the key stage three key stage four is you tend to get lots and lots of coverage of breadth at key stage three probably too much so and then key stage four is almost seen as this kind of unique thing where obviously schools are trying to prepare them but obviously they see it as this this kind of unique thing and actually 
if you're going to get it right, I think what you've got to do is obviously break down that, that like we said, that portable knowledge in key stage three to then build on that at key stage four. So not not repeating topics, but certainly having an understanding that all learning at key stage four is predetermined basically by what you do at key stage three. Because if they don't have the right prior knowledge, then actually, again, even at key stage four, that's going to be superficial. And what we tend to get at key stage four is too much content in the exam specs and therefore you get coverage and teachers will work very very hard to make sure they cram and make sure all the students cram all the knowledge and and it's there in some guise for the exam so they've crammed it we've all probably done that in exams we've all crammed and we pass exams because we we can cram but actually then what happens is that knowledge is not durable not particularly meaningful and then you get this again as this kind of gap between key stage four and key stage five so i think teachers try try their hardest at key stage three to make sure they're prepared at key stage four but i think obviously if you don't get the that cursor coverage that we were talking about earlier right then i think you're you're, you're likely to find problems again at key stage four if that makes sense thank you um, I'm just going to segue into a quick note from our sponsor before we move on to the next question. Uh, so this show is brought to you in partnership by the Happy Confident Company, who provide clinically approved eradicable wellbeing and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. And you can visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Right, Andrew, um, the next kind of area that I would like you to talk around is priming for learning. So can you just tell us what priming for learning is? Yeah, sure. Um, so priming for learning is trying to make sure that you optimise the chances of learning. Now, we know from the research, learning is this invisible kind of construct. So actually, it's very difficult to to do. But Actually, we also know, and um, Sarah Cottingham's done some great work around this, you also know that actually there are things that we can do to increase the chances of them learning in the first place. So one of those key bits, I guess, would be the activation of the appropriate prior knowledge. So if you want learning to happen, if you want to encode learning, you want to be connecting your new piece of information to obviously your, your prior knowledge. So that's, that's the way we encode to start with. And also that's the way... As kind of humans, we make meaning of things. And when we use the word understand, what we're actually talking about there is obviously something has registered from our previous knowledge, obviously, with the new information. So that's given us a level of understanding. So I think one of the key things is you've got to activate the appropriate prior knowledge. So for every lesson, I would strongly advocate that obviously teachers have really thought about what it is that you're going to connect to. Just as much as the new content, you actually need to consider what the actual knowledge you're going to connect to. And obviously, you said you were a math specialist, so obviously crucial in maths. You've got to make sure that those those foundations are there before you go on to the, the next bit. I won't give examples because I don't have that level of expertise, but you've you've got to make sure, obviously, you're activating it. And taking that deliberate time in a lesson to actually do that, rather than just rushing in to introduce the new concept, you've actually got to just make sure, spend time. And if it takes more time, then it takes more time. So if it, if it does take, let's say you've got an hour lesson and it does take half an hour, well, so be it. Because ultimately that means you're going to be optimising the, the chances of learning. Um, I think there's a couple of other ones that are quite important with primary for learning as well. I think 
we we do a lot of work around kind of um, cognitive science and things, but actually students have to cognitively engage with this material. And actually you're far more likely to do that if you value the thing that's being presented to you. So actually taking the time to make sure that students value or are intrigued or they're curious about that information is, is really important as well. And I think sometimes, and it could be 100% wrong, but sometimes in this drive for kind of cognitive science and all, all these sciences, we forget that actually those kind of human sciences of actually making sure they value it is, is really important as well. Because if you value something, if you are good at something, if you have that self-efficacy about something, you're far more likely to actually put in that kind of mental work in order for it to to happen. So for me, activating prior knowledge, making sure that obviously they value it and also being really explicit on the links between the prior knowledge and the new knowledge. So your organisation of that knowledge is is obviously really important as well, because if you overload it, and I know your listeners probably know lots and lots about cognitive load theory, but if you're overloading that that knowledge, then obviously that's it's less likely to integrate as well. So if you that first step, and I would say this is really important, and maybe an area that obviously more work needs to be done on, but that first step in, in terms of the learning is making sure you've got the right knowledge, so the activating the prior knowledge, making sure they value it, and making sure you've organised it in a kind of coherent structure, because ultimately what we want to do is we want to try and build that into the schema of those students so obviously they need to know where that fits so things like i don't know there's much debate around kind of learning objectives but uh, i think they're quite important not i don't think writing it down or any of that but actually note the students being aware of exactly what you're learning and where it's connecting to is really important if we want to try and optimize the chances of that happening I wonder, Andrew, if you might be able to give us an example of what priming for learning looks like in your classroom in a typical day. Yeah, sure. So if I was um, doing a history lesson, for example, um, and let's say I was um, I'm looking at interpretation of sources. So I wanted my students to be able to look at a couple of interpretations of sources and maybe try and analyse it. So firstly, obviously, with all skills, they are not generic so interpretation say you've got interpretation skills has to be grounded on a topic so if I was doing it around let's say uh, the British Empire and views on the British Empire and looking specifically at India so I, firstly I would need to create a resource where I'm, I've got my key questions around what I have previously taught them around the British Empire in India. So some kind of fundamental questions. And also then obviously need to have broken down the their understanding of the word interpretation and not just the word, but obviously what processes you would actually do in order to come at an interpretation. So looking at kind of the authorship of, of the historian, looking at any potential subjective natures of that, looking at... Um, what skills they need to bring to that. Also, I would then have on there the tier two words that I would like to use, obviously, in, in terms of analysing that source, because I think if they don't have the the words to obviously do it, then they're not going to be able to do it. So the, I would set up a quick kind of um, retrieval exercise, but m with the very um, mindful approach of knowing that I needed to break down exactly the bits in order to build the comprehension for them to then understand the next process so that's 
kind of what it would look like. But then obviously I would then probably move on to the process of looking at why this is important and actually trying to potentially link it to, I don't know, the diverse nature of British society or trying to link it to um, a view around actually looking at empire in a, a kind of the good and the bad sides of empire and making sure that they've got a, a kind of an awareness of, of those kind of awareness of kind of what Britain did as well. So I think, I think that for me, I would spend probably in my lesson at least 20 minutes doing that before I even then look at the, the new bit of information, because I, like I said, I want to try and avoid that curse of coverage. So not only is it a good, opportunity to retrieve information but obviously it gives me as a, a teacher the good opportunity to assess what they prove already know and then if I'm doing it right then I need to obviously try and make adaptations based on that so I'm going to look at what their knowledge is if they don't know it then obviously I'm going to need to change my lesson because they're mm. not going to be able to do the next bit and I think Sometimes I work quite closely with a lot of RECTs and ITT students as well. And sometimes that's kind of a piece of information I, I think is really crucial for them is that don't be afraid to go off the lesson plan because actually you've got to base it on that prior knowledge. And, and yet you, you might have tried to assess their prior knowledge previously, but actually in that real time moment, if it's not quite where we'd want it to be, then you need to make the kind of necessary changes to your lesson in order for that to happen. Sounds like a really good way of checking for understanding at the start of a lesson, really elicitating kind of what children uh, can remember, I suppose. Uh, in, in primary, I think we do that quite well in, yep. in most cases. Um, I think we do it particularly well in English and maths. Obviously, that's taught every day, uh, perhaps in science, history and geography. And it's certainly something that um, the wider curriculum is getting a lot more attention now in primary. And we're, we're really trying to revisit ideas so that the children know more, remember more and can do more. And it sounds like a very similar approach. And I think you're right that it, it does kind of link to assessments for learning you're checking all of the time what the children um know and then as you say you can direct the learning um well you may you may have to teach the previous lesson again yeah. um, if they haven't remembered anything um hopefully they have um but yeah it's about remembering the the foundations and then hopefully the succession um, of the, the next part of what the children are learning comes afterwards, which kind of leads me nicely into um, successive relearning. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about what um, successive relearning is, Andrew? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. Can I just um, have a couple of more bits on that previous one that we've just said? Just, um, I think there's a couple more bits. I think. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. What you were saying is absolutely right. I think. Uh, key stage two in, in primary sector, you you absolutely get that right. And I think the, the 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 beauty that you have in in primary is obviously you see those students potentially a lot more than obviously they will see them in secondary school. So you've got a, I would say by and large, you would have a a better understanding of their, their knowledge gaps, a better understanding of kind of what skills they've developed, and then you can, and I think they do that very well in primary school, you can make those kind of necessary adaptations. I think what's interesting, and I don't have answers to this, I think what's interesting at key stage, uh, in secondary school, sorry, is that potentially if I'm teaching RE, I'm going to have that class once a week, maybe. Um, and 
there what tends to happen is, is teachers get very um i don't know what the word is quite what the word is but teachers are, are then very worried about the kind of content coverage because if you're only seeing them once a week and you then have to spend like you said 20 minutes or then have to actually go oh god actually they didn't learn they can't remember anything from two weeks ago which is likely because obviously a two-week lag in something is is quite a long time in the secondary education sector where they've had potentially 25 other lessons in 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 the meantime then what can happen at secondary schools is that people get very worried about that and therefore rush it because of that and i and i completely understand that that they they kind of rush that that process as a as a consequence of just panicking right okay if i spend too long kind of checking for understanding then actually i'm never going to get move through this kind of horizontal curriculum that i've got kind of national curriculums to cover so you you get a problem in key stage three particularly i think and key stage four when that stops happening as as a consequence of the kind of time constraints and i know obviously in the um, primary sector you have lots and lots of time constraints as well i'm sure lots of your teachers will think oh god if only i had a little bit more time on that would be able to actually build that in a, a bit better i think the other interesting thing and again I'm not saying i've got any answers to these is that you it's very difficult to decide at what point all of your class have got it so ultimately what we want students to do is we want them to master material but you also are going to have potentially 30 students in a class now that's 30 students with very differing levels of prior knowledge so at what point and i'm not saying i again I'm not saying i know the answer to this at what point do you decide that you need to move on and what point do you decide you need to redo it and, and how many of those 30 students because it's it's probably very likely there will always be some in that class who don't get it particularly in primary schools you you have and I'm a big advocate of kind of mixed ability classes. So you've got mixed ability classes with the, that whole range of kind of prior knowledge coming there. So at what point do you do it? And then, and I know differentiations obviously kind of gone from the um, the kind of offset framework as as a word, but because obviously what it tends to then do is lead to quite unsustainable practices because you then have to differentiate your learning for very different prior knowledge so it's 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 quite i think it's a really complex kind of uh process and i'm not saying i've got the answers to this at all but obviously schools themselves need to decide and teachers as kind of autonomous beings need to decide at what point and though those can be quite difficult decisions because there will be students who think actually they haven't got it but for the, the need of the other 28 in the class i'm going to have to move on yeah, and it is. It's, it, it comes back to assessment time and time again. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I suppose I've never really thought of it from a, a secondary point of view. But actually, yeah, having 25 lessons in between um, is a huge amount of time to remember what happened in, you know, the the, the British Empire 500 years ago. Um, um, it, 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 you know, it's a great deal to, to to really think about, and I think that's why retrieval is it's so important. I think from a primary level, Andrew, we we know the children, we know them well, yeah. we feed them every day, um, so we can um, we can kind of drip feed things if we need to for five minutes a day if we know it's important and we want it to stick. I guess that's perhaps the difference really between primary and secondary education. Just the, the sheer volume of time that we spend with the children is um, 
is obviously different. Yeah, I think the you get, and it is really interesting from a kind of learning, like purely theoretical kind of learning perspective. So obviously what we tend to have is you, you will have, a, and I'm sure exactly the same, obviously, at primary school, but they will have far more time, obviously, with their English, maths and science teachers, which means that obviously those those individuals have, can do that can drip feed for five minutes a day because they will see them pretty much every day it's it maybe one or two differences but it's it's those subjects where they have far less curriculum time so the arts the re's that actually from a learning perspective are always going to be fighting a harder battle because they've got that natural lag and and uh, you have, sometimes have to say to teachers and teachers is it's a very obviously personal profession isn't it so they they're sometimes quite upset obviously their students haven't remembered that thing from two weeks ago that obviously was is is so important to them as teachers because they've chosen that subject to study at university to go on but actually you want to say to them actually it's it's just a natural process it's it's nothing you've done wrong it's just that's going to happen yeah sure and i think i think you're right it is part of the process to to learn something to know something you have to forget it um and in order to remember that you need to be able to either relearn it or um remember it or reenact it um which kind of brings us on andrew to the question that i asked a few moments mm -hmm. ago about this idea of successive relearning can you just talk to us about what that means yeah i think um, it, it very much is is kind of touching upon what we've we've already been talking. So I, I think successive relearning is this phrase that's used by a, a few kind of educationalists that kind of encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about. It encompasses that kind of priming for learning. It encompasses spacing and interleaving and retrieval. And it's it's kind of an approach where I'll just run through kind of what you're you're going to be focusing on is is number one. You're going to focus on the fact that decay of memory is 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 going to happen like you said you, you you've got to forget things to remember things which seems kind of alien to kind of the average person but it to the teaching community obviously you know that that's that's going to happen you've then got to make sure that you've got a, a very clear plan and a very clear plan on that kind of spacing of that information so when are you going to revisit it so if i was teaching in i don't know a piece of information that i knew was absolutely crucial in year seven well, what I then need to have done is actually mapped out for the next three years when I'm going to actually be returning to that knowledge because I know that my teacher, my key stage four teacher, needs that when the students are in year 11, potentially, so in four years' time. So I've got to then have spaced out, right, how am I going to come back to this? And obviously, in an ideal world, what you want to do is when you're coming back to it, you're not just merely repeating it you're actually building on it so so you space out but then you've got to try and build in this i think they call it elaborative or elaboration so you you want to be building on that knowledge and i think sometimes when people do retrieval forget that actually you're, you're going to try and make it a little bit harder every time and try and build that knowledge so you can have a bit more depth every time so that's really important. Um, you've got to make sure that obviously you're organised with the knowledge, how things fit together. So if you want to encode it properly, you've got to make those links. I know the primary sector is exceptionally good at this, making those links between not just topics, but subjects as well. Um, you've got to have got a very clear retrieval plan, but that needs to be adaptive because obviously, it's, it's, again, it's one of those debates of do you have 
a, a kind of rigid retrieval plan or do you have a, a some kind of topic overview of retrieval but then make sure that you've built in enough time to obviously adapt to certain classes so i've got three different re classes and actually their knowledge they've been taught the same content but obviously their knowledge bases are very different they're just different classes they're seen at different times they've got varying levels of different prior knowledge so making sure that obviously you've built that in you then got to try and make sure that when you are coming back to knowledge what you're doing is really um being really clear on that knowledge and how that knowledge not only links but obviously is different as well because i think they call it the interference principle where obviously if something is too similar it's it's likely that you're going to either confuse it or build a misconception and then again what you've got to do kind of at that final stage is you've got that kind of variability so you've got to have built in opportunities for them to use that knowledge in lots of various contexts and the more context you can use it in the better and we sometimes in this again kind of theoretical debate have this debate around in theory because uh, you you build it when you're learning a new piece of information you, you're taking in a lot of context from your environment so learning something in one classroom actually you might find it far more difficult to retrieve it in another classroom so if you want to if your end goal is to make that knowledge more transferable where you can actually use it in various contexts actually probably the optimal thing to do is change the classroom every time but obviously that's an impractical thing that schools can't do and it'd be mad but from a purely kind of learning perspective that's probably the best thing so it's it's that understanding that you're never done with a topic because of the learning process you're never done with the learning because you can always come back to it and you can always build more depth i think people sometimes think that this kind of retrieval and successively learning is boring but, but actually they're, they're missing the step of well the retrieval should be changing it should be getting more difficult it should be getting more elaborate so that the students can ultimately use that knowledge in kind of various contexts yeah, that makes that makes quite a lot of sense to me, um, and I, I can really liken that from a, a primary perspective when children are very um, first starting to learn uh, the concept of shapes. So, if you imagine a, a four or five year old when they start primary school, um, starts to get an idea of what a square is, mm -hmm. um, and will start to generalise. But if you only saw ch show children. Um, one orientation of a square, they'll have a very fixed idea of what a square um, can look like. Um, and when you show children a square which is in a different orientation, um, then children can become quite confused. And it can become the same, you know, if you think about things that are not as familiar as a square, if we think of something like a pentagon, as soon as you show children, you know, how many uh, primary school teachers in early years of key stage one show the same pentagon and the same orientation all the time and as yep. soon as they get the key stage two and it's in a regular shape but it's not in the context that they're familiar with they have no idea what that shape is yep. um it's a similar kind of um similar kind of uh, idea i suppose to what you were talking around there um as it happens in maths we call that variation theory mm -hmm. and um, it's the the theory of kind of stripping things right down to the essential and fundamental things that make that concept that concept so it can be it can be as simple as kind of 
adding in colour and asking children, well, does the colour actually change the fact that it's a pentagon? Yeah. Uh, well, no, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, and just having those conversations and around different um, around different ways of representing things. And I guess that will feed into successive learning um, in, in a little way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important. Actually, I think it's, it's very interesting. And again, these are, these are areas I'm not making any or laying any claims to expertise in, but that, that kind of certainly an area I'd like to look into more about the kind of context when you encode that information in the first place, that context is actually probably more important than, than we think. And actually in, in primary schools, and we, we tend to get it at secondary schools, probably less so that you have obviously have a lot of responsibility for that one class. And actually the, the even kind of the words you use to explain something are going to be slightly different from we're all individuals are going to be slightly different from how, from one of your colleagues. And actually when, if those students move on to a, a different teacher, let's say they go from a year, year four to year five, well, actually the, the problem is then going to be the prompt. So I know that kind of Dan Willingham does a, a lot of work around this. He said he tends to be, and again, this is what my interpretation of it, he tends to think that actually forgetting happens, absolutely, but some of the problem, a lot of the problem sometimes is that the students don't have the right kind of internal prompt for to bring that information back so actually the information is there it hasn't actually decayed but actually the way your colleague is explaining it is is different but even though the fundamental might be the same it's slightly different from how you've explained it and therefore their internal prompt isn't quite there to do it i know as as history teachers we tend to all have those kind of little gambits that we use and little stories that we use when we explain things and again i'm sure absolutely the case with you you've got those you've got your bank of kind of analogies and metaphors and to actually get over the ideas but actually your colleagues are going to have slightly different ones and then actually that from a learning point becomes quite difficult for students because they know the information but you just haven't used the right prompt to do it so um, I guess it's it's like anything, isn't it? It's it's when you're talking with somebody and you're trying to remember an actor from a film, and actually you have those in, those people that you know really well who will be able to prompt you better because you you've kind of lived those experiences with them, and you think, oh yes, of course it's that. Whereas somebody else might not have that. So I think kind of context. I know this is slightly off of successive relearning, but obviously context is is a really interesting one that I think as as teachers we've only really kind of just scratched the surface of. Thank you. Just a word from our sponsor uh, at this point of the podcast. So Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater for the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. The new Pearson MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation of the wider world. Find out more at go.peason.com forward slash MFL. Um, thank you, Andrew. We are we, we're talking there a little bit around context. And um, I suppose really it, it that is very much dependent on the circumstance in which you find yourself in. And I'm wondering if you could talk us around what the um, what the lottery of circumstance means for children. Yeah, so uh, I think this this is kind of very much grounded in in certainly my own kind of 
personal views around education and certainly the um, school that I previously worked in. So I worked in a, like I said, a school which had about 65% pupil premium um, and was was a very challenging environment, but obviously a very rewarding environment. So I worked there for 13 years and I wouldn't have done that if I, I didn't love it. And then I moved to a slightly different school with a, a, a different context, lower pupil premium. And I think for me, it certainly has solidified this idea of kind of lottery of circumstance. So the, what, it, what it effectively means is that that old kind of way we were talking about teaching, where it's that kind of cursed coverage and you go through material and you don't take the time, works better or has less of a negative impact on students who will come with more prior knowledge. And obviously you're likely to come with more prior knowledge if you've grown up in a family where they value education, where there are books in the home, um, where they have gone on trips and holidays and have been able to build a more complex kind of schema that um, they've been able to use and utilise in the classroom. And also things like homework and obviously making sure and those parents have valuing homework, valuing obviously the support from the school, valuing those teachers and what we know we've got in this country is this this very wide gap between our most advantaged and most disadvantaged in terms of of education and a lot of that is kind of predicated on uh this lack of prior knowledge and, and i build in kind of literacy with that as well we know obviously this this matthew effect that actually knowledge begets knowledge and students who already come with these higher levels of reading are more likely to be successful in in school and I think for me, certainly, it's, it's about trying to build in practices that are more likely to uh, improve the education of all students, regardless of, of background. And I think the, the, those practices we've been talking about tonight are more likely to try and narrow that education gap that we know is a big issue. We know because of the pandemic, it got worse and the lottery of circumstances is trying to understand that actually you've got to spend more time on that because you're trying to change the schemas of all your students and if you don't do that if you don't do successive relearning if you do for uh, overload students if you you go through your content curriculum horizontally then you are more likely to be disadvantaging the already disadvantaged students so i think kind of the power of of certainly education research is is that we are and i don't think we're there by any stretch of the imagination is we are starting to understand more of those processes of learning and therefore that will have obviously a more beneficial impact on all of our students rather than um rather than it not doing and i think that that kind of how do I word this? So one of the big things that people often say when we say about education research and trying to change the practices and there's this kind of potential view that, well, why did you need to do that? Because actually 25 years ago, this worked for me. So I don't know why we're, why do we need to change these things? And I've always done it this way. But actually that benefits those who have greater prior knowledge. It benefits those who come with that kind of cultural literacy that some of our students don't. So actually making sure that you are aware of that and that your curriculum therefore adapts to that is is really important so 
I, I certainly have seen that in in kind of my my the two schools I've worked in. Little things like my previous school, it was very 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 difficult to ever run a a trip abroad. So I think we did a history trip once with to uh, Krakow, and we took seven students because that's that's all we could get to go on that trip financially because obviously it's very difficult. Whereas at my new school, they're usually oversubscribed, and that's that's therefore we've got to try and look at what our education can do to actually try and close those kind of educational gaps. And do you think there's anything else that schools, government, policymakers, teachers can do to level the playing field a bit more? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, th- I think there are there are probably lots of things that, that, that people could do. I think if we talk just from a purely teaching perspective from a from a school's perspective obviously what you've got to try and do is obviously prioritize all students and and it, it becomes very difficult and it, they these are well why did that student get that and that student not get that and those those can be very difficult processes i think if we let's take it from a classroom perspective i think what we've discussed is what teachers can do on the on the kind of ground and i think that's really important i think making sure that you prioritize successive relearning rather than I think at, at one point people had to put like make sure you color your premium person on your like sheet or something and that's going to somehow miraculously change change things and obviously that's that's not that's that's a nonsense so but actually if those kind of fundamental changes of, of what you're doing in the classroom they can start having a, a, an impact because as teachers, I know we'll obviously get frustrated with these things, but obviously we are limited, I guess, in terms of what we can do on, on those those big decisions. I think from school's perspective, from teacher's perspective, I guess, and it's it's really difficult because you've got to, you, you can make obviously reasonable adjustments and that's what schools do, but it it is very frustrating sometimes if you've set homework and that child hasn't done it well actually that yeah of course that's going to be really frustrating but actually that child might not have a um a desk at home to work with he might not have or she might not have a room where they can actually sit and and do that so it's setting those expectations but obviously making sure that you don't rely on that and i think and this is a personal thing i'm i'm not a, a big lover of homework I, I don't think it's done very well. I think the uh, the research is pretty dubious on on homework, and I think all it does is kind of, particularly uh, in secondary school, and I can't speak for, for key stage two, is it's kind of you almost abdicate abdicating the responsibility of the learning. So teachers say, well, why didn't they do very well in that exam? Well, they didn't didn't revise. They didn't do the homework. Well, yes, they didn't, but that's because of very certain reasons so actually what you need to do as a teacher is to make sure you're optimizing learning in your actual lessons i think that's the kind of the fundamental thing we can do as teachers it's possibly the only thing we can do as teachers is to try and have an impact in our own classroom i mean that's that's the dream really <laughs> yep that's <laughs> what we're there for it's what we're what we're hoping for yeah it's interesting when we're talking about homework and um, i've had Contrasting experiences, really, Andrew. I've worked in schools that have been um, very uh, assertive on homework mm-hmm. and distant that it's back. Um, I've worked with a head teacher who got rid of homework altogether um, because they thought it was a waste of time. Um, and so, really, the the jury's out. The impact on outcomes was 
not really that different when we had homework uh, to, against have, not having homework. So it's a it's a really interesting um, discussion uh, that I think we, we, we could certainly have. Um, just thinking you know, to say on on research, uh, what role do you think research actually plays in education and which research do we choose? There's a whole host of questions. It, it's really at the start of my thinking. Um, essentially, the question is around what role does uh, edu- does research have in education? Yeah, I think I think that's a it's a it's a really good question. I think the reality is that it it, it could have a very powerful impact. But obviously, what we've got to be careful of with with any of this research is the of the kind of validity of it, and we've also got to be mindful that this is these are current and we always try and say to staff these are current best bets so trying to to maybe get away with the idea that this this is definitely a thing and this if you do a it will lead to b is obviously not going to not a thing really and i know um dylan william does a lot of work around this about kind of context being really important i think the the main difficulty is that uh, is a time thing so you know and i'm sure your 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 primary colleagues are absolutely the same as all colleagues that this is a we are a time deficient profession so teachers on a very very busy day will have very very little time to actually engage with with a kind of plethora of information and i think there's there's almost a kind of saturation of kind of education research out there at the moment where it then becomes very difficult if you're you're teaching you've got a near on full timetable and you've got to deal with parents you've got to deal with obviously students behavior you've got to deal then actually saying oh yeah i'm going to make some time on friday to go sit down and and do read some education research is 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 difficult and probably un, is unrealistic so i think the role it can play is is important but i think we've just got to be mindful that obviously it is it is there but obviously we've got to be i think as a profession we've got to be very inquisitive about it but obviously a little bit cynical as well not in terms of not accepting it but in terms of questioning it so i i I obviously was in the the phase where we all did brain gym and we all did these kind of uh, practices that we were told on our pgce that were yeah of course they're research informed and 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 we know that a lot of that's been widely debunked. So I think it's got a really important role, but I think trying to navigate it is is really difficult for schools. And obviously, we've got this new research-informed um, view from, from Ofsted. I know, obviously, they've just made a, a new appointment um, at the head of Ofsted, so I don't know if that view is going to change maybe over the next couple of years. But it's... It's quite, uh, it's lengthy, I would say, the research. And therefore, we've got to try and make sure, some of the stuff I've been trying to do is trying to make sure it's a little bit more digestible for teachers. So I often feel very sorry for my primary colleagues is they introduced those offset research reviews, which were huge kind of research reviews for each of the different subjects. And actually, as a primary colleague, obviously, you're going to be teaching all of those. And actually, no one on earth has got the time to read all of those things and and kind of synthesize those and then make practical applications in the classroom. It's completely unrealistic. So we've got to try and be question it, but also 
introduce a questionnaire, but also it's going to have to be in kind of small doses because actually the, the profession doesn't have the time at the moment to prioritize those things. Most people are working evenings, they're working weekends. So actually it is unrealistic to then introduce a load of new things that, that we uh, place on teachers. And obviously uh, sometimes that can be done badly. And I think, I, I guess if, for I guess my advice would be if, if you're a school you you pick one or two things one ideally and you prioritize that so let's take retrieval for example now retrieval can have a really positive impact we know that the evidence would suggest that it can have a really po- positive impact but that impact will only happen if it's implemented really well and actually just saying oh we do retrieval will actually that it might not have any impact at all if they've not actually done it in a in a way that works and is informed and that topic alone is a a huge topic so actually dedicating that time just to that one thing might be the thing that means you can do something a bit more um, sustainable i think is a really important word in education so if a practice is not sustainable then there's probably not a lot of point in doing it in the first place and we've all gone through those phases if you've been teaching a certain period of time you've gone through those phases where there are fads and schools introduce things and then within a year everyone's kind of forgotten about it because they've moved on to a new thing or it's not been done particularly well so so i think for me it should have a very powerful impact but it, it's going to have to be done in a very careful way yeah, I think uh, I really like your point on being critical around the research that we're engaging with. I think there is a danger of still doing things because Ofsted have created a research mm-hmm. summary of a subject or, you know, the latest EEF document says such and such on yeah. behaviour. So they call schools jump on that and think. And I think really it comes down to um, knowing that you can pretty much find research to contradict almost anything in education and it's just kind of how how do we know what we don't know which is of course impossible um it's about having a a, a rationale really behind why we, we want to do something what the problem is how we're going to improve it and how research might be able to support that but of course research can never take into account um your own context unless we start and view um our researchers our teachers as researchers and they would be the ones doing all of the action research in a context um with support from other professionals and i get i suppose this really is where the research schools are coming from and the research informed practice but there's yeah i think you're right i think there is a real danger of kind of um looking at research and just taking it off the peg so to speak and then you know trying to apply it and hoping that it works um under the illusion of when Ofsted do come calling you could say well you know we've designed this using this research and it ticks a box and that's the opposite kind of um well it's the wrong way really of using um using research when done right I think it can be can be very powerful yeah I I completely agree with your point there I think it is it's it's a really interesting one of, of whether teachers are no, there's lots of discussion about it whether teachers are researchers i think a lot of researchers say well they're not because they don't do x y and z i know 
I did some a course once at Southampton University on kind of the, the protocols of research and actually it's 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 quite rigid in terms of what you should be doing so what type of, of research are you doing I think your point is, is crucial there about you can a lot of research you can find to disagree with other research so uh, setting is a really good example and I don't want to get into the debate but for everything I've, I've read obviously it is not conclusive either way it is not conclusive whether obviously you have streaming works or it's not conclusive whether mixed ability classes work so you then have to make kind of moral decisions as, as a school on whether you think that thing is is right for the students at, at your school so setting would be a, a prime example it is there is the research is contradicting both ways it's it's pretty pretty uh, it's a very gray area so you as a school then obviously have to make a moral decision about actually what do you want so you might think that actually you've got a problem with uh, your low learners or, or i hate the term low learners so uh, ones who come with less prior knowledge so you might have a problem with those who come with less prior knowledge and that actually that needs to be your fundamental aim to improve in school well mixability set is probably going to be a better thing for that you might have a, a, an issue where actually it's your students who have got higher prior knowledge that's, that's the issue and therefore a different approach might be taken. So I think that's really important. I think it's absolutely like you said, I think we've got to be critical consumers of the research and also know how little we know as as teachers because there's there's so much out there and there's some obviously brilliant people like kind of Dylan Williams and Sarah Cotty and all those kind of people who really understand that stuff at kind of a, that different level. But actually, as classroom teachers, what do we know that we can obviously introduce in a practical sense because we've got to make it practical and we've got to make it try and have some impact on students? Um, and again, what can we do that's sustainable? So, uh, for example, let's take uh, Rose and Shine, for example. So obviously... And I'm not critical of that approach. That's a, the, lots of research around that approach. But I think there's lots of schools that have jumped on board this. Well, we're a rose and shine school. OK, fine. But do you know the work of uh, David Asabel? Do you know the work of this thinker and this thinker to contrast that or maybe add depth to the, the work of Rosenstein he might be good at kind of that instruction element but actually is he the person that's going to be really good in improving your literacy standards well actually who what's the research show you about reading well actually Rosenstein's not going to solve that problem so you're going to need to look at a breadth of kind of research to to come up with a, a solution that might be more sustainable yeah and that's exactly it and I suppose one of the dangers might be um could we be in a position as a profession where actually the consumption of research leads to be dogmatic teaching approaches? Yes, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting one because obviously you're on Twitter and I'm on Twitter and and, and it can be brilliant, but obviously there's, there can be lots of spats within the, the teaching community itself, which I don't think are particularly um, helpful. So... I think, and one of those problems I think is that teachers have tended to take fairly dogmatic approaches based on research. But actually, we're only really as a profession just scratching the re scratching the surface on kind of the research. So I read a really good blog piece the other day. I can't remember who it was from, but he was talking about trying not to be too dismissive of what came before because 
what it will happen is in 10 years' time, the people 10 years' time will look back at us and go, well, what, what the hell were they thinking? Why did they do that? Why did they introduce that? That was a stupid idea. And actually, there can be a, a bit, I think, at the moment of, we're at a phase where we're, we're trying to introduce research. And what you end up with is, is new teachers, so ECTs, who've got a, a kind of new framework that is more based on research. And you've got very experienced teachers who might not know that research, but their research is obviously what they've lived and breathed over X amount of years. And obviously what you tend to get is you tend to get differing views on it. Uh, me and a colleague were talking about this the other day because we do a lot of the things that the ECF would recommend now. But we said, well, we got there through trial and error. We got there through those kind of exam results sometimes you think oh god that, that wasn't great okay what can i do to fix this um whereas obviously we're trying to fast track those teachers a little bit more in terms of w what practice might be less effective um so i think with it as a, as a teaching community if we're going to move forward as a profession we, we need to it needs to be constructive dialogue that we have on these things rather than kind of I think there's a tendency sometimes for it to be dismissive. And I'm, I'm probably guilty of that myself sometimes. I'm not going to hold myself up as some kind of bastion of someone who's better. That actually there are differing voices that are really important. And we've got to, if we're going to shift education forward, which we absolutely want to do, and, and we're in this, we, we need to shift it forward, but we also need to make sure it is a desirable profession that people want to come to because we know that we've just, if anyone's seen the figures in terms of ITT recruitment, obviously this year, they are down. There's something quite unattractive about our profession at the moment. And therefore, arguing amongst ourselves is probably not helping the situation. Yeah, um, we said there about kind of uh, being quite close-minded, dogmatic around um, teaching approaches. What do you think people, teachers can do um, to stay open to new ideas and approaches, Andrew, just to finish off? Yeah, I, I think the I think the, the thing that needs to happen, two things, the thing that we certainly advocate for our ECTs and ITTs and all our teachers is that you've got to be reflective and you've got to try and, say, if we're, we're looking at kind of education research, we've got to try and look at, a whole plethora of that coming back to that research thing you've got to look at the whole spectrum of research rather than just maybe small sections and that can be hard you've actually got to do it because actually there is plenty of research that says that obviously let's take cognitive load theory now cognitive load theory is obviously important in the classroom uh, and that's great and and obviously making sure that you design your lessons and your instructional approach so you're taking on board the cognitive load of students is is really important however there are lots and lots of other things that are really important so i think i, I saw something the other day that suggested because of cognitive load what you'd need to do in a classroom is you need to have every wall completely white and and it being the the most undesirable class ever because obviously that's the way to reduce that cognitive load well actually yeah great it, it absolutely is but we also need students to value learning so you also need students to have self-efficacy so pride in things so yeah their work putting their work on the, the board there's just obviously a, an example so putting their work on your wall yeah you know that that might reduce their cognitive load slightly but what you do know also is it's going to give them 
a greater level of self-efficacy because obviously you've, they've taken pride in their work. You might have something, a picture, I don't know, of, of when you've gone on a trip somewhere, okay? Because actually I want them to value this experience. I want them to feel safe in this classroom. I want them to feel nurtured because those things are really important as well because if they if they don't feel those things, then that in itself is going to increase the load on, on their memory and therefore make learning less likely to happen. So I think, it's it's like I've just said, I think th there is a danger of uh, people who aren't in the classroom taking the theory sometimes and forgetting that actually there are very different practical things that need to happen in in the classroom. And I think that's a danger. And I, I think as senior leaders, potentially, sometimes I know I can be guilty of that because I teach less now. So actually, I've got to be always mindful of, right, will this work for my teacher who has got 10% ppa and needs to mark loads of books and then has got three gcse classes so taking it but obviously thinking about what practical things need to happen sure um yeah some really interesting points there um just to kind of summarize andrew um any any kind of final remarks for our listeners uh if you were to give them one bit of advice on curriculum assessment um how would you summarize that uh i think my one bit of advice is take take your time and the learning takes time because having that understanding that actually learning takes time and you're going to need to spend time if you want to to make sure they learn it is, is really important. And that is difficult. And it doesn't mean you're gonna to have to make sacrifices in terms of what you can cover. But actually, if your end goal is to have kind of durable and meaningful and learning that they can use in different contexts, then that has to be a priority that you're actually making sure they're learning it. And actually, if, let's, again, I'll come back to that example. If, if I'm going to do Weimar Germany in one lesson, well, there's probably no point in doing it because actually they're not going to learn it and you're just wasting valuable time. And actually every lesson counts in it. Those minutes for you, for the students are exceptionally precious. So actually all the decisions you make are, are very powerful. But I would add to this that obviously the teaching profession is really, really difficult. Uh, learning is really, really difficult. And actually what we need to always be mindful is these are our current best bets and actually things might change thank you andrew for joining me tonight i'm sure our listeners will um have listened with great interest um and i'm sure um those that are listening on streaming services um will be in touch with you at future dates um and again you can find uh, andrew whitworth on twitter and um and other socials well worth checking out having a look at some of his research uh bite-sized materials that are on there um but thank you ever so much for joining me tonight andrew um i hope you have a wonderful summer holiday and um i look forward to speaking with you soon take care yeah thank you very much that was great bye bye now bye